If you are sick of oppressive religious systems, but are not willing to let go of faith altogether, this podcast is for you. In this show, we hear from inspirational people tackling real issues of faith that actually matter in this world. Welcome to Jesus Never Ran. The church is wrong to argue that the Bible justifies any sort of discrimination, oppression, marginalization of those who are not straight. Well, the reason why you ain't got no black folks in your congregation is because we don't show up to places where we're not welcome, and we know we're not welcome based off the conversations you demand that we don't have because of the questions you insist on us not asking because of the answers you don't want to live. And the idea that the best being in the universe can't come up with a better solution to the problems of the universe than to torture people forever, eternally, you just start thinking, if that's as good as God is, this is a pretty depressing universe. Hey everyone, before we jump into the interview, just a couple of quick words about our sponsors, Rise Nutrition from Menominee. You can find out all about what they have going on by going to Facebook and looking up Rise Menominee, and that's Rise with a Z, or give Angie a call at 715-309-2706. And then our friends over at Infinity Beverages, don't forget that Thursday is buy one, get one for club members. And if you want more information on how to sign up, or if you want to order online, go to infinitybeverages.com. Hey friends, this week we are in part two of a discussion about sexual addiction. Thank you for all of the comments about last week's episode. It got a lot of traction, which just shows me that this is a topic that we need to address and continue to address. Last week we had Michael Cusick and he did a great job, such great perspective giving advice and thoughts. This week we have his wife, Julianne Cusick, who is going to look at things from the opposite side of the coin. She's going to look through the lens of a person who is married to or with someone who has or has had a sexual addiction. So let me introduce you to Julianne Cusick. I'm Julianne Cusick. I am co-founder and operations manager at Restoring the Soul. I have a master's in marriage and family therapy, and my specialty is intimate partner betrayal trauma. I grew up Roman Catholic, which means I grew up on a steady diet of guilt and shame. I actually became a Jesus follower uh, later in life, before marriage, but um, after college. Met Michael. We were um, actually interviewing for the same master's degree program, and it was one of those I had sworn off dating. I was tired of, you know, guys that went out drinking on Saturday night and then came to Sunday school for a pickup for the next weekend. So I was young, early 20s. I was naive. I was new to my faith. Met Michael interviewing for graduate school. And it was one of those like starry-eyed, love at first sight, like wouldn't have believed that it could have happened. I think there was some kind of potion God sprinkled on me or something to make me fall in love with him. When we were dating long distance, at some point he told me he struggled with sex addiction, that he'd been in therapy for it. And I, again, young, naive, and so many young women feel this way. Okay, that's a problem in the past. As soon as we get married and we're having sex, it's not going to be a problem anymore. I was one of those women. 
I often use the analogy that Michael was like a dog chasing a car because if the dog ever caught the car, what in the world would he do with it? And Michael was great at pursuing me while we were dating and we got married and he had no idea what to do with me. And that was the first few years of our marriage. And I wondered what in the world I had done. He was sober, if you will, for a while. And then as I think pressures and tensions, not having coping mechanisms, he defaulted to starting to act out again. And he was doing that for about a year unbeknownst to me. And then on July 10th, 1994, if I remember correctly, we call it D-Day. I caught him in a lie. And then life as I had known it up to that point, Matt, just totally started to unravel. And I learned about a secret life that he'd been living while we were married. I was devastated. I had hoped to start a family and at this point thought, it's over. We're going to get a divorce. I'm never going to have kids. I don't love him anymore. Don't know if I ever will. Don't really like him. Can't stand the sight of him. I'm hurt beyond belief. Feel totally betrayed. This is not what I signed up for. I, I was just devastated. To say I was angry at him, angry at God, I mean, that would be putting it mildly. When Julianne and I were talking about her story and what she went through, there were a number of times when she talked about the shame that she felt. And as we were talking about that, that kind of threw me for a loop because when I think about sexual addiction, I often think about the shame that happens with the person who is addicted. But I guess I've never really considered shame that would be on the other side of the story. So I asked Julianne to just share a little bit about that. Where does this shame come from and what is it that she is experiencing? Matt, that is a great question. I'm so glad you asked me that. Yeah, there's shame that gets heaped on to the man, the one who's watching porn or has acted out sexually. And often it's missed that many women, wives, partners of men who are struggling, they feel covered in shame as well. There's a sense of, what does it say about me if my significant other, right, is doing X, Y, or Z? Women will talk about how can I compete with a porn star? And I think for me, it was this sense of embarrassment that my husband would do this, that I, I carried this shame of what would people think if they knew? What would they think of me? And some women carry, a, and I think I did, this false sense of shame because Michael was walking in freedom three years later, five years later, and I was still covered in shame for something I didn't even do. And so I think women can, not all women, but feel like they have to hold their husband's secrets. They can't share their story because, you know, maybe he's involved in some kind of ministry or business and he's a public figure. You know, what are people going to say? And that was a gift that Michael gave me of you can say anything you want to about our story, which has freed me up. But still, I would say it probably took me five years before I told my best friend my story, and I just thought it would flatten her 
And she made me tea, listened to the story. And her first words after I laid out this garbage of a story of what I had been through, she said, I've always respected you. And I have more respect for you now than I did before. And that was so beautiful. And it really touched that wound of shame and embarrassment. And many women feel that porn is like a judgment against them, their body, their looks, what they do in bed, what they don't do in bed. And thankfully, very early on, I had a wise mentor say to me, Julianne, this is nothing about you and everything about Michael. This is his issue, not yours. And so that helped me put aside those kinds of thoughts. But women can be plagued with that I am so thankful that Julianne agreed to this podcast. This is such amazing perspective. All right, let's start digging into the whys and the hows of sexual addiction, where it's coming from, how it can be overcome. And let's start by talking about the normalization of pornography in our culture. There's such a steady diet of it in our culture that many of, you know, younger women, college, 20s, 30s, right? Well, it's just a steady diet. Like everybody watched porn in college and it was always on in the apartment or the dorm or whatever. And it's just kind of normalized. And it's like this gas seeping into the air that we're all getting sick from, but we don't realize we're getting sick and we don't realize it's stemming from porn. And I think it's just, it's so seductive and again, so normalized in our culture that a lot of women think, oh, I, it's just what's normal. It's what guys do. And, you know, I need to just accept it or participate in it or do the things he's seeing online. And there's so much damage that happens to their heart and their soul. And it's not until maybe they, you know, come across this podcast and listen to this that they go, oh my gosh, really? Like, I don't have to do the stuff that makes me feel uck inside. Like I can listen to my gut and there's there's actually freedom and hope. And it's not about me. Like, wow, what a relief that is. And this is about something deeper than just a moral behavior. You know, porn is bad, so don't do it. I mean, please, there's so much underneath the surface that's going on and so many dynamics and just family of origin issues and their uh, sexual journey, you know, exposure to porn for the first time and early sexual experiences, like so many factors that play into how addictions come to be. And I've really never worked with anyone who hasn't had pain, unaddressed pain that was behind any type of addiction that they've struggled with. And so I just think One, it's normalized. Two, the church doesn't address it. If they do, they do a lousy job of it because they talk superficially about it. And, And three, that this is a really deep, complex, soulish, relational issue that we're missing. And so many people just are walking wounded and hurting, and they're the ones my heart goes out to. So many times when we talk about addiction, sexual addictions, We just say, well, just stop doing it. Just get a mentor. Stop watching porn. But there's always something that is lying underneath. It's a bigger issue. This isn't just a problem with staring at images on a screen. There's always something underneath it. And also, it's so important to realize that this is a bit of a different battle than we were fighting 20, 30 years ago. So we can't take the same approach as people were taking when I was a teenager or a 20-something. 
back in the days when Michael was looking at porn, when he was 20 something, it was Playboy. You know, it was a still photo, hard copy, and you got what you got and that was it. Well, we are in a totally different world with digital porn. Images are touched up. They are not just images, they're movies. And I mean, you can get as many images and movies as fast as you can. And it's like crack to the brain. Uh, They literally did a study and the same hemisphere of the brain that lights up with cocaine is the same thing that lights up with internet porn. So it does impact the brain and it is highly addictive because it's novel and it's accessible and you can be discreet about it. You know, you don't even have to risk somebody watching you buy a Playboy, right? Or walk into an adult bookstore. Oh my gosh, what if I run into somebody, you know, I know. I mean, if we have a phone and who doesn't, like it's right there and it's changing our kids as they're growing up. Like the the 20-year-olds who are out there listening, they've probably grown up on a steady diet of porn. And right now, the largest population or largest age group of men struggling with erectile function isn't those that are above 50. It is the 20 to 30-year-olds who are on a constant diet of porn that's so stimulating that they can't be aroused, have an erection, or achieve orgasm with a woman in the flesh one-on-one. Man, if that doesn't get your attention, seriously, I mean, that just shows what kind of problem we're dealing with here. All right, back to kind of the crux of our issue here. Once trust has been broken in a relationship, especially to this extreme degree, I mean, I have no idea. I honestly have no idea how a couple regains that trust. So I think some of the most valuable things that we can learn today are simply how Julianne was able to regain trust with Michael after all of this happened in their marriage and in their lives. Yeah, well, fits and starts and lots of wrestling and anger and tears. Trust takes time to rebuild and grow. And I think the single most important factor in my trust growing back with Michael was his commitment to be completely honest with me. And so we went through an awful year of him telling me things that had happened while we were married. And then he would have stuff, memories of things he had done before we were married come to light. And then his present day struggle, you know, if he was tempted, he would come home and tell me, and that was really hard. It was brutal. However, the pain really allowed me to begin to trust him because I saw how committed he was to integrity, to living in the truth, to telling me everything. And so it was a real process. And I think it takes at least a year for a woman to be able to post disclosure, right? Or discovery, because that's a whole nother story is how do you find out about it? If it's a shock and a surprise, that's where trauma really comes into play. Like for me, it was a total shock and a total surprise that Michael was living a double life. And that trauma definitely impacted me and it impacted my recovery. So I say, not just from my own experience, but from, gosh, 20 plus years of sitting with women, 
when this happens to us, ladies, we're in a state of equilibrium. We're disoriented. Everything that we thought was was real and true has now been turned upside down. And there's a whole hidden reality that we're discovering. And that's very disoriented. So just to address those women who may be listening right now, that's real. And I always encourage women in that place to not make a life-altering decision in a state of crisis. And it is a crisis. Depending on the situation, you walk in and you catch your husband, your boyfriend masturbating to porn. That can be a shock. And there's so many other things that you can find out about. You know, women who get emails saying, hi, I'm your husband's girlfriend or mistress. If there are children involved, how that impacts the family system. We know men in the church and out of the church who've been fired for their sexual behavior because it was done on a work computer. So here's a a woman, maybe she's working, maybe she's not, maybe she's home with young children and her husband's just lost his job and needs, you know, intervention, treatment, help, counseling. Well, how are they going to afford that? She's usually the last one to get help, and she's the one who's most likely to need it. It's like a drunk driver hitting somebody, and they're in ICU, and everybody's focused on the drunk driver. Oh, let's get him help. Well, you know, meanwhile, she's in ICU bleeding internally and has broken bones and, you know, might even be on life support. Don't know if she's going to make it. And even if she does, boy, she's going to have months and rehab and PT after that. And, it's going to be a long recovery. So that that can be the place that a woman finds herself if she stumbles across this or is it's disclosed to her by totally, you know, complete surprise. And and I felt that way even though Michael had told me 3 years before, hey, before we get married I want you to know this because I never for a minute thought it would enter our marriage and I even said, well that's in the past, that's fine, but once we're married that's not okay. Like I'm a one woman wife me or no one, or like, you're free to do that without me, but I'm not (laughs) participating. And I was wrecked, you know, and I knew before I married him. And yet we'd had the talk and it wasn't supposed to happen. And then it did. So for me, trust grows in truth. You, You can't have trust if there isn't truth. Because then you're trusting in something that's not real. Uh, There's a little motto I saw, I think, on a bumper sticker one time, and I've shared it with my ladies that I've worked with over the years. Hurt me with the truth. Don't comfort me with a lie. And I've yet to work with a woman who hasn't resonated with that and said, absolutely, I can handle the truth. What I can't handle is the lying and the deception and the withholding information. Like so many addictions... Like all addictions, an addiction to pornography, a sexual addiction, is brutally difficult to overcome. And so I deeply feel for the spouses, the significant others of people, mostly men, let's just be honest, who are continuing to break that trust, who are continuing to fall into this temptation, who over and over and over again say, I'm going to stop, and then over and over and over again, do not. I really want to hear Julianne's perspective on this and what she would say to that spouse or that significant other who is in love with a sex addict. 
So I would first say, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. Um, it's devastating. You know, tell me your story. And I would hear their story. And then I would explore with them uh, why they're staying, what is it that they really want, and what's their line? What's enough for them that after this, there's no going forward? And really, it's an individual decision, case by case, why that woman is there, why she stays what she's willing to accept. I've had women faced with, do I share him with his mistress? I've had women faced with, do I share him with porn? Do I share him with his X, Y, or Z acting out behavior? And I'm not one to judge. You know, if a woman needs to stay in a marriage because she's got three small children and she's not working and her husband is the breadwinner and he's addicted to porn and she hates it, but she feels stuck and trapped, I'm going to work with her on what are the steps that you need to take to feel empowered and what are the steps that you need to take to protect yourself. And we're going to do that kind of work together. You know, I think a lot of what's out there is just rearranging the furniture and behavior management. And that's not my style. I want to go underneath and not talk about what the behavior is, man or woman, but why? Why are you doing it? Why are you staying? Why are you leaving? Because I don't think it's about staying together or getting a divorce. I think God is so much bigger than that. I think it's about what's really going on in our hearts. Are we just living numb and shut down and going through the motions? What does it mean to wake up, to be alive, to be whole, to know ourselves, and to engage with reality? Now, as you know, at Jesus Never Ran, we walk towards difficult questions and we don't run away from them. And a question that I have, and I think a lot of you have as well, is simply this. Is divorce ever an option for a spouse who is married to a sexual addict who just will not stop? Because I think the narrative that those of us who grew up in church or have been a part of church for a long time, the narrative, at least in regard to sexual addiction is probably no. So is divorce acceptable? Yes, and it depends on the circumstances. So I've worked with uh, situations where women have biblical grounds for divorce. Um, It's negatively impacting them, their mental health, their physical health. They should get out and they stay. That's their choice. I've also worked with women, um, not a lot, but a few, who run away. They just, they don't want to deal with the issue. They don't want to deal with their issues. They don't want to go beneath the surface and uh, divorce is their solution or separation, or we're going to live separately. And again, it's not what we do, but why we're doing it. And so I've seen both done for the wrong reasons. Of course, I want relationships to be restored because I know the ripping apart. I've watched the ripping apart, even in unhealthy marriages when you've built a life together. So my heart always wants to restore, always wants to redeem. I think that's the heart of Jesus. He's not there to judge and condemn. He's there to heal and restore. One of my early experiences um, in the church 
was of a friend of mine being uh, physically beaten by her husband. They had a young child and he was lying to the therapist. And everyone was telling her she had to stay in the marriage. Well, I was like, WTF? He's physically abusing you. He's done X, Y, and Z. There's this young child involved. Like, you've got to get out. This is a matter of safety. And when we hear about somebody with domestic violence, we think, yeah, that's a reason to get out of a marriage. But then if it's porn and it's chronic and there are relational issues, we say, oh, you have to stay married to your husband. What? Last I checked, (laughs) Jesus said, lusting after another woman was adultery and adultery is a quote unquote biblical, you know, reason for divorce. So, but people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. And I think to say divorce is wrong, God hates divorce, and you have to stay in your marriage, and porn is bad, so just stop it. Again, I think we're missing the heart of our people. And Jesus was always after the heart of whoever it was he was talking to. But I'm less concerned with if somebody stays or leaves, and much more concerned with why they're staying, how they're staying, why they're leaving, how they're leaving, especially when children are involved, because those lives are going to be related and connected for the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. So, what does it mean to end well? So, I always long and hope for reconciliation and restoration, but there really needs to be a change. There really needs to be to use a church term, you know, repentance, right? Which is not just being sorrowful, but saying, I'm going to turn away from that behavior. And I think it means I'm also going to look at what's driving that behavior. What is it in me that I'm tempted? And what is it about my story that set me up to have this compulsivity? Now I'm engaged, right? Now I'm interested. It's all about what's underneath the waterline. So unbelievably true. Wow, 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 wow. I... I don't know. This is, I mean, I've had a lot of great interviews that Jesus never ran over the last couple of years, but this one, there's something about this one. There is something about this one. Okay. So I've been asking, <laughs> been asking all my guests the same question to close out the podcast, I think for obvious reasons, but this one seems a little bit more daunting. This subject seems a little bit more daunting. And so I asked Julianne the same question that I asked her husband last week, Michael, that when you're working in this field, every single day you're tackling issues of sexual addiction, people struggling with addiction, people married to people struggling with addiction. How in this field, in the scope of our world right now, with everything that's going on and specifically in the area of sexuality and addictions in this space, where do you see hope? Is there hope or is this just like a plane going down? Matt, I see hope every day. I absolutely see hope every day. And I see it with every individual and couple I work with. And whether that's brought to fruition or not, that's, you know, out of my hands. But there absolutely is hope. I don't care how dark a room is, if you light one match, what happens? And that's what we're doing is we're lighting matches in a dark world. And I don't think it's going to come through the church and morality and preaching from the pulpit and banging Bibles over people's heads and learning one more memory verse. I think healing really comes if we look at Jesus and scripture 
like when he went to the woman at the well and said, yeah, and the man you're now with isn't your husband. He didn't shame her. What was he pointing out to her? Her thirst, the desire underneath that was directing her behavior. And, and what does he say? Hey, if you asked me, I would, I'd give you living water. You'd never be thirsty again. Well, she went and told her whole village. Not that Jesus shamed me or gave me a Bible verse, but he told me I was thirsty. Told me everything I'd done, but not just the behavior, but why I did it. And that's part of what we do at Restoring the Soul is why. What's underneath? What's causing this? So I see hope in that because, you know, it's fall here in Colorado. The leaves are starting to turn yellow and brown. Now we're going to have in a few months, hopefully a few few months, three, four months, <laughs> not next month, but we're going to have winter and the leaves are going to fall off and it's going to be desolate and cold and no life. But what comes after that spring? But it's the same death on Friday resurrection on Sunday. It's the same with our healing. Sometimes we have to go through the brokenness, the wounding, the pain to be able to come out to a new life on the other side. I think it's going to come from our millennials asking good questions and pushing back and not going with the status quo. I think it's going to happen because men stand up and say, hey, we're damaging women. We're abusing women through porn let's fight against this. Let's have a voice. He, there's healing and hope as long as there are good men and women in the world who are fighting for something bigger and better and brighter. I think it's for the individual who says, I'm not going to settle for just sex. I want true intimacy. I want to know what that's like. And I'm not going to just do sex as a service or as a pastime or to numb my pain. But I really want to know what does it mean to commune and engage with another person. Special thanks to Julianne Cusick for this interview and for helping us tackle this extremely difficult topic of sexual addiction. Also special thanks to her husband, Michael, for the interview last week. You can check out their ministry, which is Restoring the Soul at RestoringTheSoul.com. Also, for anyone out there listening to this podcast who is going through betrayal trauma, Please go to the show notes of this episode and you will find a link, a direct link to some incredible resources to help you through this. Please do that. Please get the help that you need. Please know that you're not alone. Thanks again for listening. As always, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, give a five-star rating and write a review. Until next time, keep walking.